Well, thank you guys. Thank you, choir. And uh, Michael, especially thank you. Uh, Michael's actually from Coastline Covenant. Yeah, you can have a seat if you haven't already. Um, and that is a church that meets for worship in our space in the evening time. And so he's filling in for Peter T, who realized that having a baby is a little harder than he thought. <laughs> and uh, which is a wonderful thing that, uh, you know, we can praise and worship. And we have so much wonderful praise and worship at this church. And so thankful for Michael and the team to fill in for us this morning. Um, we're going to be in Romans chapter 8 again this morning. We're working our way through the book. We're doing a, a slow working through uh, the text. And I invite you either to grab a pew Bible or you can follow along on the screens. We're going to be in verse 18 this morning. We'll dive right in. Romans Chapter 8, starting at verse 18. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and the glory of the children of God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would instruct us by the words that we have just read together, um, that you would open our hearts for what you would want to say and do in our lives. Lord, may we always be open to how you want to work. Holy Spirit, would you minister? Would you comfort? Would you uh, challenge? Would you uh, reveal what you would want to do in us? here at St. Andrews. In your precious and holy name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. All right, so we're going to unpack the text, and to help me to start do that with line verse 1 here from Romans chapter 8, I have a picture, I believe, that I want to share with you. Everybody know what movie this is from? Who here has seen Shawshank Redemption? Raise your hand if you've seen Shawshank Redemption. All right, lots of people. Uh, in fact, this is one of the most uh, popular movies uh, as rated on, you know, movie rating websites and things like that. And it, it's always on cable, it's always on all the time. And I recently read a wonderful article about this movie, kind of talking about the subtext of the movie and why it resonates so deeply with so many people. And if you need a little reminder, so here's the two main characters in the story, right? On um, the left, my left, is Andy Dufresne, and then, then on the right is Red, okay? And what we learn early on in the story is that Andy is wrongfully accused of murder and sent to Shawshank. And we also learn that when Andy meets Red, that Red actually says, He's the only guilty man in all of Shawshank. He's actually, 
able to admit that he committed the crime that he's in jail for. Well, as you watch the movie, even though, and I, spoiler alert, if you haven't seen it, it's too late, okay? But as you go through the movie, you would assume, because it's a prison movie, like so many prison movies, that at some point, what's going to happen, right? There's going to be a breakout that's going to take place. But this movie does a wonderful job of actually distracting you from this breakout that's happening because uh, there's a whole other sub-narrative that's happening on the other side that really distracts, and that narrative is all about Shawshank. And Red really teaches us what Shawshank is, is like, right? And uh, he, he uh, through a series of events and characters, eventually begins to uh, just talk about what being in pri a prison like Shawshank can do. And one of his quotes, he says this. He says, these walls are funny. First you hate them, then you get used to them, then you get to depend on them. And he says, that's being institutionalized. And so while he is in prison, there's something about being in a prison that begins to take over the prisoner and take over their mind and their spirit, and they actually become used to being in prison. They become comfortable being in prison. Well, all of that is contrasted by Andy Dufresne, who, uh, through a series of events in Shawshank, one is actually a rip from my favorite movie, Cool Hand Luke, but uh, it's where they're working together uh, up on the prison uh, gang is working together uh, to do some some work on top of a hot roof, and they work so hard, they're able to convince uh, their warden that they um, can have some cold beer. And so for one day, these men that are in prison that never get to have cold beer get to have cold beer. Or another time, he breaks into the warden's office, actually plays opera on the loudspeakers, just this beautiful music for these people that never get to hear beauty or art in, in that way anymore. Or he also is in charge of the books eventually, and he goes around to all the prisoners and uh, educates them, provides education for them and a way to get out of the prison even though they're in prison. Well, as uh, we see, Andy is actually chiseling away with this little rock hammer and creates a hole and is able to actually escape Shawshank and get out. It's this beautiful moment where he just goes through everything he could possibly go through. He goes through the, the sewer pipe and gets out and eventually is free. Well, Red also is kind of inspired by Andy Dufresne, and he uniquely starts getting really honest. And the parole board, after recognizing his honesty, actually lets him out. But once he gets out into the real world, he has a really hard time. In fact, Brooks, who went before him out into the real world, committed suicide because he had been in prison so long that he didn't know what it was like on the outside. Uh, he felt much more comfortable in the prison than he did on the outside. And so when Red goes, he goes to the same place Brooks went. But thankfully, he doesn't do the same thing Brooks does because he's inspired by Andy. And this is the real transition in the character work of the story. And I say all of that to get us to think about this idea that is true, I think, for all human beings. That, in a sense, we can be in prison and totally free. Or we could be totally free, but also in prison. And a lot of what that has to do with 
with is our inside and our outside world. And how we can, as Christ followers, I think what this first verse is teaching us about our present sufferings compared to the future glory that is made possible in Jesus Christ, that there is a way in which what's going on in our inside world does not have to be affected by the outside world. I want to learn more about that. I want to grow in this way in my faith. And so that's why I'm so stunned by uh, texts like uh, verse 18 here, where it's just saying, if you really could see from God's perspective your life and all of the challenges, even the challenges that are unique and acute right now in our world, that if you could see the span of your whole life, how would you spend that time? If you had that kind of perspective each and every day, how would that change the way you made decisions? How would that change what's inside your spirit as you engage the harder things of life? And then also, what would you do if you knew that if you were engaged with the right kind of suffering, that it was actually producing glory? One of uh, my favorite preachers in, in this moment is a Methodist preacher named Will Willimon. And he said something in a sermon that I want to pass on to you that both shocked me and comforted me at the same time. He said this, Jesus didn't come to help you with your problems. He came to show you that you are the son of the most high God, a son or a daughter of the most high God, and that he has a whole new set of problems for you to deal with. Jesus doesn't care so much about our problems as he does about his problem, his mission in the world. And have you ever noticed that when he goes and calls the disciples, he doesn't ask them for a strength finder or a disc test or a psych eval. He just says, come and follow me. He doesn't ask for their resume. He just says, come and follow me. Somehow they were the ones called to join with Jesus. And this sense of calling is so important uh, when we think about this transition, right? When we're thinking, God, a lot of our prayers are just help prayers. God, would you help me with my problems, do the things that I need to do to get through my day? Some of that's really good, especially if you're already on Jesus' mission. But there's the sense by which if we can reframe and think, okay, God, let me forget about my problems. What are your problems? What are the things in the world that you're working on, and how do I join in with those? All of a sudden, we're in this space of calling, and we can think about the problems that we encounter in a totally new way. One of the ways that I've been learning how to do this is just this realization uh, of a pastor and congregation relationship. Uh, the reality of St. Andrews is that no matter who Jesus drags in the door of that church, I got to deal with them. Doesn't matter who it is, doesn't matter where they came from, 
There's no prerequisite. I'm not giving you a psych eval when you walk in the door. I'm not checking your resume. There's no prerequisite for any of that. You, whoever Jesus calls to come to St. Andrews, now we're church together. And in the same way, God has called me to be the pastor of this church. So if you don't like this sermon, you take it up with God. <laughs> because this wasn't my idea of a good time. It was his idea of a good time. And that's true on both ends of this relationship. And I think sometimes when we get in these relationships, right, we, we discover that relationships are messy and imperfect, and I could just speak for my own self. There are many days when I come to the, the challenge of this calling that I feel imperfect before it, that I don't have everything that it would take in order to bring harmony to the church, to bring spiritual change into your life. Only God can do that. And so what we need to do is to think through what we're called to do. And even though we do it imperfectly, the beauty of what comes out of this calling, the beauty out of what comes out of this mission, out of this reframing of our problems is that we can kind of see more what God may be up to in the world just right here in our everyday, ordinary lives, that instead of the things that annoy us about each other, they all of a sudden become the opportunities we have to invite God in, to rely on God more, and in a deeper, more holy, significant way begin to work out what it means to be the church together. In a world, in an external world, that will fight for your peace that is hoping to institutionalize you and though you are free in Christ is hoping to imprison your mind and make you small and make you feel beat down and make you feel like you have nothing to contribute to make you feel like the world uh, is so big and scary that you can have no part in changing it. But Jesus is teaching us a whole new way of being. One of my favorite passages around this is one of the most misunderstood passages because it's such a popular passage. But it's uh, from Philippians chapter 4. It says this, For I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. That's Philippians chapter 4. This last line is the one you recognize most, correct? For I can do all things through him who gives me strength. This was in my Christian high school's locker room on the wall. It's a very popular verse for athletes. Nothing wrong with that necessarily. But I think what happens is because this verse is used so much to talk about victory on the playing field, 
that we miss the context of the verse, which is not so much always about winning as it is about what life is truly like and how Christ can get us through all of life's times where we are in need. And for Paul, in this text, this means being poor because he's thanking the the Philippian church for giving him a gift, a financial gift. But he kind of stunts on them. He kind of flexes on them. And he says, you know what? I thank you for this gift, but I don't even need this gift. A little impolite, but only the great spiritual teachers can kind of begin to teach in this way to say, look, I know what it's like. You've given me this gift. What a joy that you provide this gift. But let me give a gift back to you, which is Christ Jesus' strength that can get you through any time of need or plenty. And we know people, right? We've met people. If you've lived long enough, if you've gotten outside kind of a bubble and you've gone and seen the world and experienced a little suffering in your life, then perhaps you've met people that don't have a lot, but they have great joy and family. And perhaps you've also met people that have everything that the world could offer, and they can get it whenever they want it, and yet they lack contentment and peace. And so Jesus comes to teach us what it means that in some way that all of creation is anticipating that you would hear these words about the truth of who God is and that it would become revealed to you that you are in fact truly made to be a son and daughter of the Most High God and then in doing that, that you would begin to live in a way where the outside world doesn't affect your inside world because You're so dealing with Jesus' problems, you don't have time for your own problems because you know that when you're dealing with Jesus' problems that you're actually working towards uh, the fulfillment of all of this expectation that all of the earth is waiting for you, for you to come to the full realization of who you actually are. And it is eager to have you do this It is eager. It desires eagerly. It aches for you. We're going to get into that next week. It's just aching and groaning for you to become who you were made to be and to do the things you were meant to do that God put you on this earth to do. And I love this this idea that this isn't just something we feel, but it's all of creation. Last... uh, Yesterday afternoon, I had the great joy of going to my, 80, uh, to my great uncle's 80th birthday in Long Beach. And uh, Uncle Phil, the thing you need to know about him is he was one of JFK's first to join the Peace Corps back in the day. And so he spent two years in Latin America on a dirt floor in a rural village. And then he came back to the U.S. 
And he is as smart as any man I've ever known. But he decided what he would do is to spend his time teaching at an elementary school in Watts, Los Angeles. And so he spent 40 years teaching in Watts. And in his latter years, in his retirement years, what he did is he took up a project where there was an abandoned firehouse in North Long Beach, actually kind of on the border of Long Beach and Compton. And he turned it into a garden with a group of people. And so we were at his birthday party, his 80th birthday party, at this garden in Long Beach. And as part of the garden, what they had done is they had taken this table um, where they uh, take all the produce that they've grown and they exchange it, uh, they give it to people. If people want to bring produce, they can, and they have this kind of exchange of food that they, they do at the garden. And sometimes if you, if you can't exchange food, you can just come and get fresh produce. And on the table, it says Phil's table. And so we had his birthday party, and all of the, the matriarchs and patriarchs of our family kind of gathered us all into a circle. And there was a lot of people, at, uh, for an, especially for an 80th birthday, for my uncle, and then my uncle John, uh, his brother, stood up and told some stories. And it was beautiful to see my children and uh, grandchildren and generations and generations just listening to the, this great patriarch of our family talk about his brother. And at the end, what he said was that if you love the earth then you love God. And my brother loves the earth. And I wonder if all of creation is just waiting, waiting to be used in this type of way, eager for us to understand the beauty that's within the earth and for us to cultivate it and to reclaim broken spaces and make them new. Because this whole text is all about bringing forward a new human being and a new heaven and a new earth. And so we don't get to see it in its fullness, but we get to see it in these little glimpses like Uncle Phil's table. Where the goodness of God is extended to all who would want to come. And so if you woke up this morning and you poured yourself some cereal and you were feeling small... I pray that this scripture made your soul expand and your heart a little bigger and has helped you to understand that all that frustration, what it is actually really about is the need for you to be employed by God on his mission. And that doesn't mean the frustration goes away. It just means that it's moved into a deeper, more purposeful way for your life of being. And then in the end, might you discover that if you take the scripture up on its invitation, that you are on your way to seeing the glory of God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray that uh, you would give us your problems Show us what they are. 
so that we could know a peace that goes beyond understanding. Knowing that you are with us always, even to the end of the age. So join with us now. Um, Lord, as we move to communion, make us one, make us whole. Help us to know your love and grace. In your precious and holy name we pray. Amen.